that great? Thank you to Dennis Jernigan for doing that for us. If he's had nine children, he's healed. He needs grace of another kind now. All right. And again, that was done just for us. We can't even play that on the radio. They asked us not to. Uh, did it for our church. So thank you to Dennis Jernigan and, and his folks. Now, since we're talking about these things, let's deal with some of the questions I've gotten. Are you ready? I don't think you're ready. That, was, that sounded real hesitant to me. Why are we doing this? We're doing this because I want our church to be established in the truth. And I want you to trust your Bible. I want you to trust your Bible. So we're answering some really theological questions tonight uh, about God and some that have to do with horizontal relationships. So this way and this way, we're dealing with questions tonight so that we can trust our Bible and know what God is saying to us. So let's look at one now. What about common law marriage? Is it biblical? Because that's all that matters to the believer. Not what the culture says. What does the Bible say? We get our truth from where? The Bible, first and foremost. Not what the culture decides is true as it goes from one thing to the next. Because the culture's truth always changes. But God's is fixed, and it never changes. And that gives us security. So let's look. Is it biblical common law marriage? Well, nowhere are the permissive morals of our day more evident than in the new practice of men and women living together without the benefit of marriage. Now, I say new, although the practice has been common for centuries, as evidenced by the five times married woman Jesus met at Jacob's well. Remember her? Uh, she, had, she had really, really struck out in marriage five times. And then Jesus, well, let's just look what he did. He clearly took issue with the fact that she was shacking up without the benefit of marriage. Because he said, go get your husband. And she said, well, I don't have a husband. He said, you're right. You've had five husbands. And the one you're living with now is not your husband. Well, she came away going, I think he's a prophet. Because <laughs> he just read her mail, okay? But what was his issue? Well, there, I, I thought I had it written down. There it is. I don't have a husband. She said, yeah, 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 yeah. And we just, I just quoted it by memory. You're not married to the one you're living with now. Now, if it hadn't mattered to Jesus, would he have said that? No, he distinguished between marriage and shacking up. While common law marriages are not hard to find, here's what's new. What's new is it's become a common practice to which society no longer attaches disapproval. You go out there now and say you're living with somebody that you're not married. Oh, that's great. That's, as long as you love each other. The Bible does not teach that a civil or religious ceremony must be performed for a marriage to be valid in God's eyes. This is a civil requirement, and as law-abiding citizens, 
Christians are obligated to observe it. However, if you know people that live together, it's evident that in biblical times there was, there had to have been, a contractual agreement of some kind, perhaps verbal, signifying marriage. Or Jesus would not have said what he did to the woman at the well. And remember, where did he perform his first miracle? Turning water into wine. A wedding between a man and a woman. He went to a wedding, and that's where he did his first miracle. Now, if he did a miracle there, he's clearly placing the divine seal of approval on an official marriage. All right? Jesus did distinguish between living together and marriage. The parables he gave us, parables of the marriage of the king's son, the parable of the wedding garment, the parable of the ten virgins, indicate that an official marriage had happened at a given time and place in the mind of Christ. Jesus talked about marriage a lot, and he talked about divorce. If some argue that in biblical times men and women did not buy a license to solemnize their relationship, it should be recognized that today when people live together, they obviously do not intend to be married or they would spend a few bucks to legalize their marriage. These people have been living together 10, 15 years. I want to say, Lord, get married. Why are you not getting married? In fact, they specifically, if you talk to them, do not consider themselves to be married. Although in some instances they may consider the possibility in the future, yeah, we'll do it someday. We're going to do it someday. But right now, don't have the money. We don't have, we're not set up the way we want to be. Listen, you're never going to have enough money. You're never going to be. There's two things you're never fully ready for, having a child and getting married. You just obey God. Now, here's what bothers me the most as a pastor about the whole deal of shacking up, living together, unmarried. It's not that people flaunt the laws of God because they've been doing that for time immemorial, but that professing Christians engage in these practices and don't see anything wrong with it. I just, I just, I go, where has, where, where are we missing this? Because the Bible couldn't be more clear. Or else, what does the word fornication mean? What does it mean? Why have that word if shacking up is okay in the eyes of God? Well, we just believe we're married in the eyes of God. Well, isn't that funny? Because as soon as you decide to break up, you go down the road, find someone else, and you just believe you, that you and that person are married in the eyes of God. No. In Jesus' day, there was a marriage. And we've got to get back to the Scriptures on this, folks. We've got to get back to the Word of God. Another thing is other professed Christians condone the practice as long as the participants really care for one another or love one another. Now, this erroneous view, this premium we put on the word love is part of the multi-tentacled octopus of political correctness. Political correctness is teaching our culture right now, training our culture. And political correctness says that God will allow you to place your emotions 
over his truth. That emotions trump truth. This thinking has moved into so-called same-sex marriage and the whole controversy over that. Here's the argument. But if we love one another, why can't we marry like heterosexual people do? Because we love one another. Why can't we seal it with the marriage ceremony like heterosexuals who say they love one another? And what are they saying there? They're placing emotion over truth. Now, if those of you in here were 30 years old and under, you would be having a real problem with that statement that I just made. If you were 30 years old and under, because that age bracket has been so indoctrinated, so brainwashed in the whole political correct thinking deal that to them, emotions do indeed trump truth and validate almost anything and justify almost anything, but not in God's Word. PC teaches that love sanctifies all things, even to the point of justifying sin. Let me just tell you straight up front, love cannot sanctify sin. Let me say it again. Emotion cannot justify sin. Not in relationships where you say you're in love any more than it does when you, in a moment of passion, kill somebody. And you say, well, you know, I didn't really mean to do it. I was just overcome with anger. So, so the fact that I was overcome with an emotion justifies what I did. See how far that goes in court. And in God's court, I'm telling you folks, we've got to get back to this. It is by obeying the truth that we become blessed. The more you obey God's truth, submit to it and let it rule your life. Jesus said, he who hears these sayings of mine and does them, those are the ones I will liken unto a wise man that built his house upon a rock. And the rain fell, the winds blew, the floods beat on that house, and it did not fall because it was founded upon his teachings, which are truth. So if, if you're going to live your life by your emotions, you're going to live a life like a roller coaster. Up and down and all around, because your emotions vacillate and fluctuate. But if you build your life on truth, then God is able to bless you. So when you got a decision, the decision is not based on how you feel. If your feelings run contrary to Scripture. Now sometimes emotions can confirm truth. Like, for instance, if I do something I know is in the will of God, I'm flooded with peace, and that's an emotion. Great. But if I'm in love and the person is already married, you can be in love all year, dear. You're still in sin. If you're in love and you're shacking up, I can tell you that doesn't, your love doesn't justify that you're in fornication. Scripture's message is that God's truth trumps emotion. Emotion takes a back seat to truth every time. And let's not forget the biblical admonition to avoid the appearance of evil. 
So if you're living with somebody and you're not married, what is the whole, the, the whole church is going to find out about that sooner or later? And how does that look to the church? You're going to make your brother or sister stumble. Or you're going to give the impression, hey, you know, we love the Lord. We're there every Sunday morning with our hands raised, singing hallelujah and kumbaya, and we're living together, and we're just fine. So people all through the church that would love to be able to shack up if it were not a sin, see that and go, well, they're getting away with it, and they're happy, and they have joy. We must not understand the Bible message, so we can do it too. Are we our brother's keeper? Yes. It's quiet in here tonight. <laughs> quiet in here tonight. But see, it, it just angers me what the culture has done with, with even the church. In the Bible, cohabitation outside of marriage is called fornication. Or if it involves the married, it's adultery. Just to set the record straight on what the Bible teaches about it, let's hear Paul again. Or do you not know, says Paul, that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Don't be deceived. Now here comes the laundry list. Neither fornicators, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor effeminate, nor homosexuals, nor thieves, covetous, drunkards, revilers, or swindlers are going to inherit the kingdom of God. And such were some of you, but you were washed. And you were sanctified, and you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. So there you go. Thank God that you were instead of is, because he's such like Dennis. He got set free. Isn't that beautiful? Now, and in the spirit of our God. So give the Lord a hand that he knows. And if we had more time to deal with this, and I don't, but I could go into all the Stats. You know, sometimes it takes a generation to discover the truth about something. When the sexual revolution was launched in the 60s, everybody thought it was just great that people were finally casting off those old traditional restraints that the, that old antiquated church put on them, and now they were free to go to bed and hit the hay with anybody they wanted to, any time they wanted to, because now we've been liberated. It took a generation for us to realize the consequences of that thinking. And when it comes to shacking up, living with, with somebody not married, the stats are coming in on how those relationships don't last, on the percentages of marriages, higher percentages, that don't make it when the couple lived together before they were married. All the things that, once again, show us the truth of the Word of God. But we don't have to find out. We don't want to have to find out by pain, we want to find out the truth by wisdom and live by it. Amen? Now, clearly, God's Word teaches that two people, a man and a woman, should marry before co cohabitation. Now, let me deal with another question. And this one is particularly poignant in light of Rick Warren's son's suicide, Pastor Rick Warren's son, 27-year-old young man. I've read a lot about it. Uh, he was, according to Pastor Rick Warren, a brilliant, sensitive, uh, felt people's pain very keenly, was a natural counselor. But from the time he was little, he would go into dark moods of despair. He dealt with clinical depression. He, was, he, 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 he dealt with these black holes of, of, um, of just 
the pit of depression. So finally, ended it. And it's a heartbreak. And I continue to remember Pastor Rick and Kay. I can't imagine being in that boat. But it, it raises the question. And I was going to answer this one anyway. But do people who commit suicide go to hell? Is it an unforgivable sin? Now I'm going to tell you that I presided over several funerals where the deceased had committed suicide. If you've ever been to the funeral of somebody who has committed suicide, you'll never forget the experience. While there is still love, and I can attest to this, those emotions amongst the family and friends are mixed with disappointment, anger, frustration, the wonderment of what might have been had they lived out their life, questions about where he or she is now, and I, as the one presiding over the funeral, must answer that. So I've had to dig when it comes to this whole issue. Let me give you some stats that are pretty amazing. Over 25,000 Americans commit suicide each year. Over 1 million will try, but only about 1 out of 15 will succeed. It is the 10th highest killer in the United States. More will die by suicide than by murder. The model age for attempting suicide is around 32 years old for men, and for women it's 27. The model age of succeeding at it is 50 to 54 for both men and women. Men kill themselves twice as often as women, but women attempt suicide twice as often as men. There are over 5,000 suicides among teenagers every year. Some 10,000 college students will attempt suicide in a year. It's the second highest cause of death. Get this. Read this slow. The second highest cause of death among young people aged 15 to 24 surpassed only by accidents. Now that's amazing. Now I have my own, my own feelings and, and, and a philosophy as to why suicides are at this level. You teach young people they came from evolution, that there's no God, there's no ultimate meaning, no ultimate purpose, no ultimate design. You are just the result of, a, of an evolutionary fluke. And you take that and pile on them situational ethics and relativism and massive doses of, of immoral, uh, secularistic teaching and, and uh, brainwashing, and they wake up one day and say, what's, what's the purpose? What's the use? Now, 13 young adults each day consider life not worth the living. That's twice as many as 10 years ago and three times as many as 20 years ago. While the Bible itself does not include the actual word suicide, there are at least seven different times in Scripture where a person commits suicide. There was Gideon's son, uh, Abimelech. Then remember the, Heidi, uh, the mighty He-Man with the she-weakness? Samson. Then there was Israel's first king, Saul, who committed suicide. And interestingly, when Samuel appeared to Saul... 
uh, at the presence of the witch of Endor, he said to Saul, by this time tomorrow, you and your sons will be with me. But how did Saul die? Suicide. Then there was David's old turncoat counselor, Ahithophel. And then next came the murderer Zimri, or Zimri, who set a building on fire and remained within. That's really wanting to go. And finally, the most infamous suicide in the whole Bible, Judas, the betrayer of Christ. Now, from these biblical examples, we're able to gain a window into some of the thoughts and expressions experienced by a person contemplating suicide. Here's what they are. Feelings of hopelessness, despair, utter disappointment, pride, anger, and frustration can all be present. Now, when a person commits suicide, it can be a very selfish, unthinking act designed only to gratify themselves or to cause pain to those that are left behind. You're going to treat me this way. You're going to leave me like this. You're going to do whatever you did to me. Well, I'm going to kill myself and really hurt you. Well, it does really hurt them, but nothing like the suicide. In those circumstances, a person is not considering God or His plan for their life. But there's also other times, like Pastor Rick's son, when suicide is a result of a mental illness or an incapacity of rational thought. Some people who go through the difficulty of bipolar disorders or suffer from severe depression can be dangerously susceptible to suicide. They usually are, especially if they're not receiving medical treatment or counseling. Yeah, whatever the reason, the Bible states plainly, and I want to be clear on this, that suicide is unacceptable. As Christians, let's remember, our lives have been bought and paid for through the action of Jesus Christ. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 6, 19 and 20, do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you? Your body is God's house. Where he, as it used to be in the Holy of Holies, where he resided in the presence of his Shekinah glory, when the Holy Ghost fell on the day of Pentecost, you and I, believers in Christ, became the new dwelling place, the home of the Holy Spirit, which is awesome. We have this treasure in earthen vessels, Paul says. So do you not know your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit who's in you? whom you have received from God. You are not your own. Now say that with me, would you everybody? You are not your own. Let's make it personal with a personal pronoun. Ready? I am not my own. Let's try I further. I was bought at a price. Therefore, I will honor God with my body. Yet the question remains, is suicide an unforgivable sin? Now, I checked this a little bit and found some things that were amazing to me. For many years in the early church, the conventional thought was that suicide was an unforgivable sin. Augustine argued uh, in the 5th century that suicide was a violation of the 6th commandment, you shall not murder. And later Thomas Aquinas came along, being Catholic and believing that confession of sin must be made prior to departure from one world to the next. 
uh, taught that suicide was the most fatal of all sins because the victim could not repent of it. You know, you place a gun to your head and pull the trigger. You're not there to repent for what you just did. And that was Aquinas' argument. And he based this on the fact that if a person dies while they're committing a sinful act, they're unable then to confess that sin and ask for forgiveness. Of course, that sounds logical, but then again, not really. I believe these are incredibly damaging and unbiblical views, and they can be refuted, and I'm going to do it right now, because I don't think that's biblical. Let me tell you why. All I need to do is ask you two questions. You answer these tonight. First of all, do you sin? Anybody in here that, that hasn't sinned since you got saved? How about this week? Well, I'm getting too personal now. How many of you have sinned since the new year rolled around? Said something, thought something? Come on, let me see. The rest of you, I want to meet you after church. We all sin. You sin in word, thought, action, and attitude. That's the four ways we sin. So the answer is yes. Secondly, have you confessed each and every sin that you have committed in your life? Have you? Now, you know why it's no? Because there are two kinds of sin, commission and omission. One of them means you don't know you did it. See, some of you sin just now, not raising your hand when I ask you if you had sinned. <laughs> so the whole idea is that the sin of omission is you don't know you did it. That's why David prayed, cleanse thou me from secret faults. Secret faults. I don't see them. You think something, say something. In other words, all of us tonight are in an imperfect state, are we not? Now, in God's eyes, when he views us through the blood we are perfect as Christ was perfect. But in the natural, in time and space, in everyday life, we all sin by thought, word, action, and attitude. And a lot of them that we do, we don't even know we're doing them. We don't catch it. There are sins we forget. There's even sins we commit that we're not aware of. And so by that logic, each of us would still be susceptible to the eternal fires of hell and still unable to receive the grace given through Jesus Christ if we were to die right now based on our true condition and not what we have been decreed to be through the blood. But Scripture tells us this is not the case. John 5, 24 says, Most assuredly, I say to you, he who hears my word and believes in him who sent me, read the next three words with me, has everlasting life. Based on what? He who hears my word and believes. What gives us everlasting life? Keeping the commandments? No. Believing on the one who did keep the commandments. So we have everlasting life based on faith, not action. And Jesus said, you're not going to come into judgment, but you have passed from death to life. Now, I believe the view that suicide is unforgivable is wrong in that it represents a gross misunderstanding of eternal security. We are saved by the grace of God, folks, not 
works. If we're saved by grace, then how do we keep our salvation? By works. Having been saved by grace, do we then maintain our salvation by the very thing that could not save us in the first place? No, we're saved by the finished work of Christ. We've, we've spent two weeks on this one. This is the third week we have visited this whole eternal security issue. Because if you believe it's all about works, that you know, like the Lord saves you and then says, you're on your own, keep up those good works. And if you mess up, it was great knowing you. Then, hey, the devil is going to pick off everyone in this room. I couldn't live that way. It would make me a neurotic mess. But it's not depending on me. Ephesians 2, 8 and 9 tells us, for it is, read it together with me, it is by grace you have been saved. How? Through faith. And not from yourself. See you later, guys. It is the gift of God. Not by works. Read those last three words again. Not by works. So that nobody can boast and say, I got myself saved. And we're told in Romans 8, 38 to 39, for I am convinced that neither death nor life, nor angels nor demons, neither the present nor the future, nor any powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation, nothing else in all creation will be able to what? Separate us from the love of God that is in Jesus Christ our Lord. There you go. Now that, you can't get around that. So those of you that think you can go out and lose your salvation at the drop of a hat, just go sin and walk away and live in the world and live in the flesh, I want to know what sin is it that you're going to do that's going to take you over where you've lost your salvation, and then once you have, don't forget what Hebrews said. If you think you have, Hebrews says it's impossible to renew you again to repentance. And yet I have a room full of people who have all sinned but repented. Now, even more so, it's important to be incredibly cautious of our approach to this issue. And I, and I, I treat this one very, very carefully because suicide cannot be condoned, and it should not be dealt with lightly. While the person committing suicide may be forgiven, he or she will suffer the loss of spiritual rewards that they would have accumulated had they finished their course on earth. And that's big because there's eight crowns the Bible reveals are going to be given out at the judgment seat of Christ as rewards for God's people. And, and to short-circuit yourself into eternity is to take away the one chance you have to store up rewards. Jesus said, Lay not up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust corrupt and thieves break in and steal, but lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where moth and rust don't corrupt and where thieves can't break in and steal. So our life on earth is short, but it's the one and only time we have to lay up for ourselves treasures in heaven. And the suicide short-circuits that. 
I want to, I'm going to be greedy with the things of God. I want everything I can get. I want to preach till I'm 90 if God lets me. And what about the incredibly painful, law, lifelong impact their suicide has on remaining loved ones? What kind of a legacy is left behind? Suicide is a permanent solution based on a temporary state of mind. In our times of despair and sadness, I'm going to say to anyone in here who might be contemplating it, because I have been in places in my life. Now, I've never seriously gone and grabbed a gun or grabbed some drug and seriously put it there and decided to do it. But I would be lying if I said that in my deepest moments I haven't had the idea go through my mind. But if you're there, or anybody listening by radio is there, it's crucial that you allow God to take over and carry the burdens you bear. And I know sometimes it may feel like He's not there and you're carrying it alone, but you're not. Psalms 55, 22, roll your burden upon the Lord. He will sustain you. He'll never suffer the righteous to be moved. 1 Peter 5, 7, casting all your care upon him, for he cares for you. And, and I know, I have never dealt with a bipolar situation. I've known people, though, who were tormented in their minds. Schizophrenia, bipolar, clinical depression. I've known them, and I've ached for them. But I still say, give it to God. Give it to God a hundred times a day if you've got to. Seek all the help that you can find. But do not take your life and short-circuit yourself into eternity. It's only through God's grace that sorrow can be turned into joy. And the cross of Christ has the power to heal even the most painful of circumstances. Uh, believe me, in most cases, every storm runs out of rain sooner or later. If you're in a real dark moment in your life, I'm telling you, His mercies are new every morning. Great is His faithfulness. God will carry you through to the other side and you'll have a testimony. Amen? Now, are God and Jesus the same person? Here's the next question. Are God and Jesus the same person? Very theological, but you know what? That question has rocked the church from its inception. How to view God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Ghost? How are they different? How are they the same? So let me just answer that, uh, this question um, the best I can tonight. First, the Bible teaches there is how many gods? There is one God. Here's what it says in Deuteronomy 6, 4. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. There's not many gods. There's one, and it's the Bible God, Jehovah. But that God, unlike we human beings, exists in three persons. Wrap your mind around that. The Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. The one God is comprised of three persons. Look what Jesus said when he gave the Great Commission. He commanded the disciples to baptize their converts in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. And when we baptize people in water, that's exactly what we do. I baptize you in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, buried with him by baptism into his death, raised to walk in newness of life. So Jesus right there delineated 
the one God in three personalities. God the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. Now, Paul gave the benediction to the Corinthian church. And in that benediction, he mentioned all three persons in the Godhead. Look what he says in 2 Corinthians 13, verse 14. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, there's the first one, and the love of God, there's the second one, and the communion of the Holy Spirit, there's the third one, be with you all. We call that the Trinity. So twice, baptized in those three names, and Paul said, hey, may Jesus grace you, may God love on you, and may the Holy Spirit communion with you. Now, we need only take one passage of the New Testament to show that the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit are distinct personalities, though they make up one God. In John 14, 16 to 18, and verse 26. Now, when we read those, we're going to see that Jesus knew that in a short time he would be crucified, and after rising again from the dead, would be caught up to heaven. Therefore, he said to them that he would pray, God the Son would pray to the Father, asking that he would send someone like himself to them. He called this person the Comforter, Parakletos, Paraclete, the one called alongside who will never leave you. And he would abide with the disciples and all believers as long as they're on earth. Now, since Jesus, the Son, prayed to the Father, both must be persons. Or it'd be ridiculous for Jesus to pray to himself. Jesus didn't pray to himself, Oh, thou Jesus, would thou Jesus, please answer me, Jesus. No, the distinct personality, God the Son, was praying to the distinct personality, God the Father, that he would send the distinct personality, God the Holy Spirit. In other words, they are all three distinct personalities that think, feel, decree, have wills, but their wills are totally unified. Likewise, in the 26th verse, Jesus makes it clear that the Holy Spirit is also a person, not an it or a thing or a force, a person. You can grieve him. You can cause him to rejoice. He gives peace. The Holy Spirit has emotions. He's a person. He says the Holy Spirit shall teach you all things and bring all things to your remembrance. So this third person of the Trinity teaches. You can't teach unless you're a personality. The Spirit is given the personal pronoun he and is described as being a teacher. Only a person can be a teacher. Summing it up then, the Bible teaches that although there is but one God, that God exists in three persons. Now, here's a simple analogy, really simplistic, but here we go. Think of an egg. An egg consists of three parts, the shell, the white, the yolk, but they're one egg. Here's another one, H2O. can be ice, liquid, or steam, but it's the same H2O. 
God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit are three distinct personalities, but they comprise the one God. Like I said, wrap your mind around it. I receive it by faith. Amen? Amen. All right, I'm going to move ahead to the next question, and uh, I think we get it. So say it with me, God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, three in one. Boy, we're getting smart tonight, theologically wise. All right. You know, people say, well, theology is boring to me. Well, theology, the word means the study of God. I think we all want to know who God is, right? All right. Now, here's one. What does it mean when the Bible says that God makes peace and God creates evil? Does God cause calamity? Now, that's the next question. It's the last one I'm going to deal with tonight. Let's read the passage that this person quoted. Isaiah 45, 5-7. Listen to what God says about himself. First, there's no God besides me. I am one. There's not another God. I am one, the Bible God. I am the Lord, and there is no other. Now look what he says he does. I form the light, and I create what? Darkness. Now look what he says. Read it with me, all of you hyper-faith people who think that God doesn't ever do anything rough or tough. Are you ready? I make peace and create calamity. I, the Lord, now God's telling us what he does. I do all those things. I create peace and I create calamity. Now, is God really the one who creates evil? Amen. We got some, we got some theologians here tonight shouting me down already. That's all right. Is God really the one who creates evil? Now, to answer the question, you've got to first look at how the word for evil is used in the Isaiah verse. It's the Hebrew word ra, ra, evil. Now, this Hebrew word for evil is used in many different ways in the Bible. In the King James Version Bible, it occurs 663 times, the Hebrew word ra, evil. 431 times, it is translated as evil in the King James. The other 232 times is translated in any one of a number of words. Here they are. It's translated as wicked, bad, hurt, harm, ill, sorrow, mischief, displeased, adversity, affliction, trouble, calamity, grievous, misery, and we already said trouble. So that word ra can be translated into many different English words. So we can see that the word does not require that it be translated as evil as the King James does. Now this is why different Bibles translate this verse differently. Okay? It's translated as calamity by the NASB, New American Standard Bible, or the New King James Version. Disaster is how it's translated in the NIV, and woe by the RSV, Revised Standard Version. 
Second, the context of the verse is clearly talking about natural phenomena. And here's what I want to make clear. I don't believe the best translation is the word evil. Because you can use that to mean moral evil. And God never causes moral evil because James said, God cannot be tempted with evil, neither tempteth he any man with evil. So if you're ever feeling tempted to do something wrong, don't ever let the devil tell you that's God telling you to do that. Because he never does. The Bible says, I am the Lord and there is no other. Besides me there is no God. I will gird you, though you have not known me. That men may know from the rising of the sun to the setting of the sun that there is no one besides me. I am the Lord and there is no other. I form light and I create darkness. I cause well-being. And look at this translation. And I create calamity. I am the Lord who does all these. Now notice that the context of this verse, the Isaiah verse, from the person that gave me this question, is dealing with who God is, that it is God who speaks of natural phenomena, sun, light, dark, and it is God who is able to cause well-being as well as calamity, but not moral evil. He doesn't make anybody sin. Contextually, this verse is dealing with natural disasters and human comfort issues. It is not speaking of moral evil. It's dealing with calamity, distress, and so forth. And this is consistent with other scriptures. Let me show you. For example, in Amos 3.6, Shall a trumpet be blown in the city? Ask Amos, and the people not be afraid. There shall be evil in a city, and the Lord hath not done it. In other words, God is saying that when there's calamity in a city, He can be the one that did it. Look at Amos chapter 4, verse 6. Now what we're going to see is when God judges, and I personally believe the judgments of God are falling on America as we speak, and I believe they're going to be coming in stronger and stronger doses for many reasons. I don't have time to go into it tonight. But when God judges a city, for instance, he sends, according to the scriptures, calamity. Now let's read it. I brought hunger, says God, to every city and famine to every town. Who did it? Come on. God. Say it. God did it. He's saying he did it. But still, you wouldn't return to me. So what was God after when he sent these calamities? He was after their repentance. He wanted them to turn. Amos goes on. I kept the rain from falling when you needed it the most, ruining all your crops. I sent rain on one town, but I withheld it from another. It was selective judgment. Rain fell on one field while another field withered away. People staggered from one town to another for a drink of water but there was never enough. Now what does God say again? But you still wouldn't return to me. Now what, is, what we're seeing here in Amos is judgments expressing themselves in calamity that increase with frequency and intensity. Okay? Now look at verse 9. I struck your farms and your vineyards with blight and mildew. Locusts devoured all your fig and olive trees, but still you wouldn't return to me, says the Lord. 
Also, take note that Isaiah is presenting contrasts. He talks about light and darkness, well-being and calamity. The word well-being in the Hebrew is the word for peace. So the evil that is spoken of in the Isaiah passage is not moral evil. God's not making people sin, but it's the evil experienced by people in the form of calamity. Now, all I'm saying in this, in summary, is this. Does God create calamity? You better know that He does. Can God lift His blessing off of a nation? You better know He can. Can He lift the wall of protection and allow the enemy to come in? You better know He does. Is this happening to America? You better know it is. Because America has turned from God officially. We haven't. But as a nation, more and more by the day, it's breathtaking to watch. I never thought that I would see it. But it's happening in America by the hour. God's going to take care of His own. He's going to provide for us in the midst of judgment. But you better know that God has lifted the hedge. And I believe the first sign of it was 9-11. And since then, well... I just don't have time to go into it all. But yes, God can send calamity. And yes, He does. So we can trust that whatever God does is just and is used for teaching, guiding, and disciplining His people. Therefore, God does not create evil in the moral sense, but in the sense of disaster or calamity. Yes, He does. Just ask Sodom and Gomorrah about it. Let's stand together, can we? Well, did you get blessed tonight? You get some questions answered. All right, good. Good. All right, let's lift our hands to the Lord. Father, we just thank you for the clarity of your word. We thank you for speaking to us. Thank you, Lord, for helping us to see through the lens of Scripture. We pray you will bless us as we go out. Bless us as we go out. and face the world again tomorrow. Strengthen us. And thank you for making us the head and not the tail, above and not beneath. Blessed in the storehouse and blessed in the field. Blessed in our going out and blessed in our coming in so long as we are submitted to you and your word. In Jesus' name.